Hi, I'm Dave Bazuki, founder and CEO at Roblox. You're listening to Tech Talks, a podcast about the people and ideas that are shaping the future of 3D human co-experience. In this series, we'll be exploring some of the most innovative technologies that have emerged in this new category and sharing stories with the Robloxians that are building them. Today, I'm joined by Jan Berthold, Principal Software Engineer in the Infrastructure Engineering Group at Roblox. We'll be talking about our active-active vision and all the technical challenges we're solving to enhance our data storage platform as well. Jan, so good to see you. You're so good to see you too. I'm happy to be here. I, You know, Jan, I, I remember the first time, I think, I, well, I met you several times, and then I remember a company meeting a long time ago where you were a junior engineer and you were showing something really cool at a at a whole company meeting we'll come back to that because that's when you you really popped on my radar but could we even go back further and just maybe share a bit about how you got into computers and you know what your trajectory was towards roblox yeah absolutely i'd love to so my trajectory to Roblox is actually very tied to Roblox itself. When I was, you know, fairly young teenager, um, I had friends who were showing me this cool new platform at the time called Roblox. We could like play games, which was great. And over time, I realized that I first thought, oh, it's it's a games website. That's great, right? Like, you know, but there's a few others of those. And then over time, I realized that what actually makes Roblox unique is that you can make your own games. Well, how do you? do that, right? How do you build your own games and late experiences? And that's actually what first got me interested in how to, I didn't know it was called programming at the time. I called it like how to make computers do stuff. And I started working on experiences for others. I was uh, for a long time really interested in driving cars. So I had, you know, 15 iterations of a driving game that just kept making it better and better um, and shared it with my friends. And then over time, I realized that the part that really interests me is how to help others and how to make others more productive. So I first did that on the Roblox platform still, building tools, building you know the time you could just share studio plugins, right? Like plugins in our IDE to help others make, make experiences. So I built a few of those. And then over time, as we came close and close with the platform, I figured, oh, like how do I help all users of the Roblox platform? And I joined as an intern, and the rest is history. Hey, when you were when you were doing this, where where were you living at the time when you first discovered Roblox? Oh, I was living in Germany where I grew up. Okay, and were you doing this in middle school age, high school age when you were building your driving simulator stuff? Yeah, I think this was starting probably around thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, it took me about a year, I think, to transition from just just experiencing to making the experiences. And then when you did your internship, could you share, were you in high school at the time or studying in university or where were you? Yeah, absolutely. I had just started university. I had done a year of computer science, obviously inspired by programming. And then after a year, I did a six-month internship in San Mateo in, in, in the office. Okay, so a couple thoughts. One is, I think you're highlighting a, a little bit of a vision that our education group shares a lot, and that is our influence is much larger than sometimes we ever imagine as far as young people around the world 
who get interested in computer science, in art, design, in STEM, in business and music production. So that's, it's very consistent with our vision and it's really lovely to hear that. I think when when we think of you within the company, you know, we think of you as a very senior engineer and in effect, your lifestyle almost sounds a little like the NBA where, you know, young players in the midst of their college career go pro directly. And I think in this case, it, it feels a little bit of a computer science parallel for you. <laughs> That's a very flattering comparison. But but it's kind of true, right? You uh, you didn't. It sounds like you didn't go through all four years of college, and at the same time, working for Roblox, you're highly regarded as a really senior engineer. So just you know, kudos on all of your self learning and the the progression of your technical skills. So then, fast forward, do you remember that company meeting, Jan, where you popped on my radar? And, and can you share a little about what you were demoing at the company meeting? Absolutely. I didn't think you'd remember it. Basically, at the time, we were, I think we had already deployed a bunch of microservices in our backend, right? A bunch of, we were just starting to break out our monolithic core websites into a few different, into different services to help us scale to more engineers. And at the time, you know, we were running on Windows, we were on IS, which is their, their web server. And we were thinking about how do we make this more efficient, right? Like how do we use Linux? How, how do we, how do we scale this from just 200 engineers, you know, to the thousands of engineers? And then also how do we enable our engineers to focus on building their own product and not focus on, oh, I have to ship this service and then I have to babysit it and spend time on that. So what I think you're referring to is we had built a prototype, uh, me and my manager at the time, of basically a service that runs in a container that runs on Linux with the first uh, continuous deployment flow, right? So the first like fully automated uh, deployment tool in uh, at Roblox. And I think the demo was that during the town, I think it was a town hall, like some company meeting presentation. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, we, we, we pushed the service to production. Um, which um, uh, at the time felt like a huge bet, right? Because we were used to, oh, you have to roll it out slowly for two two hours. You have to to look at it very closely. And we realized that we can automate a lot of that, right? And make everybody more efficient. And then later, uh, not because of that demo, but like later on in that same same process, we started building a team around this that eventually helped the entire company Trans, uh, transfer to microservices um, that run in containers, which I was also briefly part of. Yeah, I want to highlight a couple key strategic things that in the midst of, of course, building new stuff and radically improving the way we build our infrastructure, I do think there's a couple of decisions that we made correctly early on. The first was leaning pretty heavily into building both our, our own core and edge data centers leaning pretty heavily into controlling our own bandwidth, leaning pretty heavily into our own compute. And and I think this decision in the end has made us extremely cost-effective on our infrastructure. And there's another one that's that's interesting in that I I think we started using C-sharp a bit before it was cool when a lot of banks used it. But I think Microsoft along the way um, in open kind of putting it on Linux and making it 
more usable. I, I actually think it helped with our efficiency as well. So those were two great decisions for the, for everyone in the audience. Can you share just maybe what is the difference between what we would call a core data center and an edge data center? And what did it, what happens in each of those? Absolutely. So at the physical level, both core and edge data centers are just data centers. Like you can think of them as rooms with servers and network equipment and other equipment in them. We essentially logically separate them and our edge data centers is what runs our stateless workloads, right? So if you think of Roblox, right, you join experience, right? So there's a server that you connect to that does all of the real-time uh, simulation. Those run in HDCs. And we essentially allocate those around the world to make sure that we always have the lowest possible network latency between the HDCs and the user. We also run a number of auxiliary services that are also latency sensitive in there. For example, like AI inference for running games, we terminate HTTP connections, uh, TCP connections at the edge to reduce latency of page loads. Maybe for our audience, I think what that means is if I'm in India and I connect to our edge data center in India, I may go all the way to Chicago on Roblox's own bandwidth rather than hop around on the internet. And I think that means a much faster connection to Chicago. Yes, absolutely. We we aim to bring you into our network uh, as close as possible to you because the internet is notoriously unreliable and we want to be able to control the experience and to give you the best one. And I think on, on the networking side, I know we sometimes measure this in terabits of bandwidth and I know there was a time when we were sub terabit. I know we're now, I don't even know where we are, but it's a fairly significant number of terabits. Yes, um, I actually looked this up earlier today, and earlier today we hit about 3.5 terabit on just, uh, we're recording this on a Friday, right, which isn't doing school season, so this isn't our peak either. Yeah, and so that's not our capacity. That sounds like real-time information moving on our network. And as far as the magnitude, you know, on the edge data centers, I know we have one in Poland, I know we have one in Singapore, one in Tokyo. So this is where all the 3D simulation happens. And you mentioned latency. I, I do want to highlight that probably the most difficult latency thing to handle would be one of our Roblox players is in Tokyo and one is maybe where you grew up in Germany, trying to have a real-time 3D immersive simulation. They may default to a edge data center in Chicago, but our client, because we do a lot of client-side simulation as well, we do try to mitigate that and make that feel very comfortable in a way where that might be difficult if both of them were using a video streaming type technology. Yeah, cool. And then what is a core data center? Yeah, so a core data center essentially stores all of our state, right? So I, I previously referred to edge data center stateless, right? So it's where you run real-time um, simulation. Somewhere we also need to store, you know, which users have signed up, what items do they own, what messages have they sent. And that happens in our core data centers. Compared to HDCs, we have much fewer than those. We only, today we have two. Uh, two years ago, we had one. And actually only one is active at a point in time today, right? Our eventual goal here is to make them as ubiquitous across the globe as edge data centers so that we can always give you the best possible experience. But because we're dealing with state that we need to move around, this is a much harder problem. 
All right, so we're slowly moving from one to two to five eventually, and then from there on. Yeah, and, and I'll highlight in this notion, we have nice redundancy with two data centers now, but from an economic standpoint, and some of our investors, we shared this with them. In effect, we do carry extra CapEx because we, we have all that redundancy. In your vision, when we have five data centers, for example, we can imagine if we turned one off, the other four would share the load. And there's some fun math we can do where the extra cost there, I'm, I'm running the math of four plus five is 25% extra rather than 100% extra. So that there's also a huge potential efficiency of CapEx as well as we build this out. Yes, absolutely. right. And you start needing less, uh, less CapEx once you hit free. Right, where the jump from two to three is actually the biggest because you jump from 100% extra cap to 50% extra cap. So that's what we're working towards. Yeah, and for the Roblox Infra group and team that's out there, I, I do want to compliment the CapEx efficiencies that have happened just as a result of making code run faster and eliminating N squared things and doing a lot of other things. So we are we are getting efficient in additional ways as that. And, and I do want to highlight, I do believe we have some action going on in our second data center as well. It's just not a shared load right now. Why is it hard to run a worldwide distributed system on top of five physical data centers for core data? Yeah. So a bunch of different reasons. Um, I'll start with the most easiest one. So as an engineer today at Roblox, and to some extent developers as well, um, when you deploy a service, you have fairly stringent requirements, right? Like, you know, oh, I'm deploying to one active core data center at a time. I know that all of these services that I rely on are fairly close by, right? So typically we, we, within a core data center, we have about a five millisecond round trip, which is like very fast. As we move to free, your service is suddenly not only in one location at a time, it's in free, right? So we're changing the interaction model. Any process that, for example, deals with service directly will just not scale anymore. Kind of in, in public cloud terms, you can think of this as you previously used AWS EC2 and now using AWS Lambda, right? You're getting a managed service. You just say, hey, here's my service. Please figure out how many containers you need to run to serve my load. But I can just focus on what does my service business logic do. Now... The problem with moving to this is that we have 2,000 services already, right? So this is not a lift and shift overnight. And as part of this, we also need to consider data, right? Data where today we often use single active host RDBNS, MSQL, for example, which works really well if you're close to it, but want to start considering what data patterns your service has, you need to move to a more scalable solution, right? For example, my users' assets, right? Like if I'm in Germany, arguably we want to save what items are in my inventory in Germany, right? So that when I ask for what items do I own, we can access, we can give you the information as soon as possible. If everything's just in one database, you only have one choice. Okay, do you put this database server in Chicago or do you put it in Germany, right? And some people are going to be unhappy. We now, as we dive into having more than one location at a time, we have to start understanding what exact small pieces of data need to be where and who's going to access this and are they going to modify it or do you only need to serve it, right? So it forces you to understand your services a lot more. There's a notion we have where 
And let's talk data persistence and databases. We have right now a fairly rich persistence environment for the creators on Roblox. We have a set of key value stores, index stores that a, a lot of users may not know, but the creators of their favorite experience are storing a lot of those things around their avatar and their persistence in that place inside of these facilities. And then we also have Roblox engineering things where we show users and you know assets and things like that. I like the notion that in a worldwide distributed system running at high performance, this is a problem and an opportunity both for our creators as well as for data for users because we also want your avatar to load quickly in experience in Germany or some of that game data. So one of the, I think one of the opportunities is if we design for the Roblox community, we have to design at a very high ease of use. And if we design for the Roblox engineers internally, we have to design at mega scale, 65 million DAU and all of that. Do you think it's possible to build storage and persistence systems that can do both of those? And, and what I'm getting into is automatic locality, automatic data migration, so that over time, the interface to these systems for our own engineers starts to be the same as our Roblox creators. Yes, absolutely. I think that. In, in a certain way, what you said, right, the, we, for our creators, we want to make it as easy as possible. That is also true for our engineers, right? Like we want to make it as easy as possible for, every, for everybody. So the vision here is providing a small set of storage services that can automatically deduce from the inputs, oh, this data probably belongs to this user and then understand what are the activity patterns, where do we need to move it? This extends on like a couple of dimensions, right? For example, my inventory, to go back to that example, should be saved in Germany if I'm there. But then, you know, maybe I think I owned it for two weeks and I can't access a computer, so I'm not logging on. Then we should probably also move it to a different storage medium, right? So understanding intrinsic properties of our data and our data here means, you know, data that Roblox engineers might store about users or that data that creators might store about users is very valuable for this. And fundamentally, it's the same problems. Yeah, so that the, the more I feel we stick to that design principle of converging on systems that our engineers are using and externally using, we have a, a wonderful opportunity to innovate in that area. I, I want to highlight one other thing that we're seeing because we've built out all these edge data centers, we have an amazing amount of compute capacity around the world, is some of our AI systems are starting to use the same edge data centers that we use for 3D simulation. And we've migrated the majority of that inference to our edge data centers as well. So some of the foresight that our infra team had in building that is allowing us to host AI jobs side by side with compute jobs. Any other things you think someday we might run on edge, Jan? I have a few key candidates. I don't know if you want to make projections there or I could ask you. Projections are always dangerous, but I'll attempt anyway. I think over time, most things that we run will run on edge, yeah. right? As we, for example, if a Roblox experience saves my, my user's data, why does it need to go back to a single set of core data centers, right? That's purely the case today 
because we haven't innovated enough yet. So over time, I think most services that we run anywhere, we want to run as closely as possible to the user, at least the ones that are directly visible to the user. To follow the AI trend, we also run training. Right, that's a that's a great thing to run in our core data centers, especially in the capacity buffers of service that we need anyway, and to put them to good use. But over time, most other things should just run an edge. And do you feel okay? Now we're getting really technical, so I can I can imagine app servers and all of those services running edge wise. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where our persistence system is also running on edge data centers, is, or does that start to get a little wonky? when we're looking at a worldwide distributed key value store, for example? I do think so. I think the key to getting that done is understanding what data needs to be where, right? It wouldn't make sense to just take all of our data and have 36 copies of it in all of our locations. But if you can understand, oh, Jan is playing font lines, for example. So let's move the data created by the creator of font lines about Jan into the HDC where the simulation is running to have that low latency access and empower the simulation to be richer. Okay, cool. I, I wanna ask you, now we'll start going a little off script. I wanna ask you about cold starting a bit if you're up for chatting about it. And cold starting is really interesting because we've over time implemented adaptive systems that get better and better at cold starting a system. And for, for our audience, maybe what you could share is how the cold starting thing is very similar to what we experience at some points in time where in our matchmaking system, one or two million people all go exactly to the same place at the exact same time. Can you kind of share both what cold starting is as well as what that situation creates? Absolutely. So cold starting fundamentally is the problem of users suddenly doing a thing on mass that we didn't expect them to or that we're not prepared for. A few examples of this, like one, as you mentioned, right, where if a game, for example, does an update and they ask everybody to rejoin and people are really excited, you know, we've seen millions of people attempt to join the same experience within a few seconds, right, which obviously is a lot of unanticipated load that these services need to handle. Right, kind of the one that we talk about a lot is that our caches are empty, right? We are a very cache-heavy company. Our caches run a few magnitudes more requests than our databases itself. So if we've been down for a while, or if you move people to a new location, they will be empty and the backend system will be overloaded. It also relates to our services, right? Where if services suddenly handle you know, 10 times 100x more requests than they did a few moments ago. You know, you need to have a lot of more downstream connections. Your your code might not be jitted yet. So it might not be just in time compiled and optimized yet. And it creates a lot of problems for us, right? And these spikes will always happen, right? So we need to prepare for them. And we have a few different ways to prepare for that, like each kind of attacking one of the technical areas that I just mentioned. For example, degrading gracefully is a big thing. Right. When we have such a big spike in load, we don't want to essentially just fall over and then create the same problem a few minutes later again. But rather it is how do we gracefully degrade the experience for you know a few minutes at a time? And then and it will gracefully get better for everybody. Right. So we've been working on, for example, shedding traffic proactively, right? When we see moments of overload. We've also been working on and this kind of goes with the theme of understanding what data needs to be where. 
of pre-bombing caches, right? Like when, for example, when we bring up a new courtesy and we invite users in or allow users to it, we already can predict what data build access. Like for example, I will access my user data most likely, right? So we've been working on essentially being prepared for these types of spikes. And then lastly, a few of our features and teams have focused on very semantic optimizations. For example, matchmaking knows, oh, if there's a spike after a shutdown, I should just have all RCCs already ready, right? Uh, I shouldn't be surprised by it. So there's a number of different things we do. Yeah, that's interesting. And I do believe there's a lot of opportunities on pre-warming, even on RCC servers, which are the game servers that people join. Hey, looking out, Jan, into the future, this isn't Roblox, this is industry-wide. If we look to the year 2035, for example, and you had to make a few bold predictions on, let's just talk about storage for for now. You know, the current storage landscape is there's a wide array of wonderful database and storage products. Some of them are relational, some are key values, some are distributed, some are consistent, some are eventually consistent. We're getting better and better. There's no magic thing where you get this open source storage software and it handles a trillion users in real time all around the globe. Where do you think this is going to go in the next 10 years? And what kinds of technologies will we see? Oh, that's a good one. I think even though in the past 10 years, the entire industry has been heading more towards enabling strong consistency. And but what we're still seeing today is that oftentimes you still trade off performance. And I think we will make a big few big leaps in ensuring that essentially don't trade off consistency for performance. Today we still have, have this problem a lot. My understanding is today, if we are building a worldwide storage system, our engineers might have a couple of options, either super high performance but not necessarily consistent, or slightly slower performance, but consistent. Mm -hmm. Do you believe those will melt away or in the future, everything will be fast and consistent? Well, we're not going to change the laws of physics. I think similar to what we've been talking about for the last half an hour, the key is understanding your data better, right? So strong consistency when looking at an entire data set is really hard because you know, it needs to be in one location for it to be performant, right? If you start spreading out different replicas and bodias just kind of across the world, that's that's gonna not be that's not gonna be very performant, right? If you on the other hand understand exactly which subsets of your data are required where, you can still have strong consistency in those locations. And you essentially just trade off that your predictions have to be correct. Yeah, the more that is automated and the more we could have both at the same time, I think that will be quite visionary. Well, Jan, it's, I mean, it's been amazing to watch your career trajectory. You're emblematic of what we're hoping to do at Roblox, which is, you know, find amazing people who are creative and innovative and have them join our engineering team. It's also fun to bump into you in the halls because even though, you know, you grew up in Germany. I see you a fair amount at our headquarters now as well. Thank you. It's exciting to see where Roblox has evolved over the last 10 years. And just come to share an anecdote. A lot of the people that I was working on experience back, you know, 10, 10 years ago, 
they're all still, they're all not working professions that they picked up for Roblox, right? So obviously a fair number of them actually still make experiences on Roblox, but I've also seen many just become composers, become artists just independently, but for skills that they picked up. So um, that's the part that I'm really excited about to see keep going. Yeah, I'm excited about the 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 notion that the skills involved in human co-experience are much broader than the traditional computer science we think about. As you talk about artists and composers and sound designers, it's just a a great example of that. Well, hey Jan, it's been great. Thanks again. And that's all for another episode of Tech Talks. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to find out more about careers at Roblox, check out roblox.com forward slash careers. I'm your host, Dave Bazuki. We'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.